Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and to the third installment of Fried Egg Stories, our audio documentary series. Today's episode is about Tiger Woods's professional debut at the 1996 Greater Milwaukee Open. And today's sponsor, appropriately enough, is Visit Milwaukee. Wisconsin is an amazing golf destination. You have courses designed by Langford and Moreau, Pete Dye, Corin Crenshaw, David McClay Kidd, many of which are accessible within a few hours drive from Milwaukee Mitchell Airport, which itself is just eight miles from downtown. You can fly into Milwaukee and choose from an array of different courses that you can play in the same day. Now, the greater Milwaukee area has also been the site of some really memorable golf tournaments and some big ones that are coming up. You've got the Ryder Cup in 2020 at Whistling Straits. You've got PGA Championships 2004, 2010, 2015, also at Whistling Straits. You had the 2017 U.S. Open at Aaron Hills. And of course, for much of the 20th century, you had the Greater Milwaukee Open at Brown Deer Park Golf Course, just outside of Milwaukee, where Tiger Woods said, Hello World, in 1996. To learn more about golf in Milwaukee, go to visitmilwaukee.org golf. All right, let's get to the story. Uh, we're excited about this one. We've been working on it for a while. We talked to U.S. Open champion Curtis Strange, journalists Jaime Diaz and Gary D'Amato. We talked to the Greater Milwaukee Open tournament director Tom Strong. We even talked to Jim Riswald, the guy who wrote that famous Hello World Nike ad, and they were all great. We're really thankful to all of them. And so, without further ado, here is Hello Milwaukee, Tiger's pro debut. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a, a fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. This is the longest one-footer he's ever had. <laughs> Pumpkin Ridge, 1996. I'm glad he's making him putt it. I'll tell you, it's amazing the thoughts that go through your head at this position right here. A golfer in red and black addresses a short putt. Another Tiger comeback completed. And with it, golf history. Three straight U.S. Amateur Championships for Tiger Woods. Earl Woods coming in, mother and father. There's that famous hug where... Tears will be exchanged. It had been one of the most exciting final matches anyone could remember. Over the first nine holes, 20-year-old Tiger Woods of Stanford University went four down to Steve Scott, a University of Florida sophomore who was playing tough, inspired golf. But on the second 18 of the day, Tiger willed himself back into the match, sinking several clutch putts, including an astonishing 35-footer on the 35th hole. Looks good. Great speed. It's oh, in. Are you serious? He closed out the championship on the second playoff hole. But according to Jaime Diaz, the atmosphere on the green wasn't as jubilant as you might expect. The crowd was almost exhausted from all the excitement that the comeback had entailed. And there, I think there was a kind of a sense of inevitability that Tiger would win the playoff. So I'm not saying there wasn't excitement, but there was almost like a coronation feeling as opposed to, oh, my God, he did it. 
there was a sense that, okay, I've completed this mission and a, a new chapter was, was ahead. And in the post-round interview, Roger Malpe asked about that new chapter. Well, Tiger, we got to ask the question, what does this do to, to your feelings as to whether you'll turn pro or stay in school? I don't know right now. <laughs> I just know one thing. I'm going to celebrate like hell tonight. <laughs> that was a dodge, of course. The decision had already been made. Tiger was going to turn pro. And his first tournament, the Greater Milwaukee Open, would start in four days. In this episode of Fried Egg Stories, we're focusing on one week in Tiger Woods' career, his professional debut in 1996. And I'll tell you up front, this won't be a story about what happened on the course because, with a couple of exceptions, nothing much did. The most significant events occurred off the course, in the press room, in front of the cameras, during commercial breaks. It was in those spaces that the public image of Tiger Woods, the myth of him as a professional golfer, began to be invented. And not everything went smoothly at first. Make no mistake, when Tiger arrived in Milwaukee on August 26, 1996, he was already a star. He had won three straight U.S. junior amateurs and three straight U.S. amateurs. The press had been singing his praises for years. And yes, the golf world had seen its share of child prodigies come and go, but this fiercely competitive, fiercely talented, half-African-American, half-Asian-American young man from Cypress, California, was different. I, I just recall he always looked so poised over the ball. He never looked like he was there was any tension in his jaw or anything that was like getting ready to load up and really kill it. It was more this kind of gathered speed at a really very fluid and uh, I won't say leisurely, but at just a, a very controlled pace. And then the hips and the lower body just turned so fast. It was just a, a beautiful kind of swivel of the hips that was just so fast and so correct. Jaime Diaz was a writer for Sports Illustrated, and he had been covering Tiger since Tiger was 14. I, it was in my head, certainly, that we may be looking at perhaps the greatest golfer who ever lived in his formative years here. To some people, that felt like it was uh, exaggerated or uh, unjustified, but he had this intangible quality of playing his best golf under the most pressure, which was kind of transcendent. And Jack certainly had had that and not many others in history. So. And that, that's the thing uh, that made Tiger so special. I mean, he had all kinds of physical game, but when he had to do it, he entered this mental state that seemed to facilitate his best golf. I don't know. That's kind of the final level of, of golf greatness. And you do your best at the, the moments that are the biggest and the, at, at the times that you want to do your best. Uh, that's usually an inhibitor to most people. And for him, it was an enhancer. Diaz's Sports Illustrated story about the Pumpkin Ridge Amateur opened this way. Long odds are still available on Tiger Woods' achieving his goal of becoming the greatest golfer of all time. But after the breathtaking way in which he made history on Sunday by winning the most dramatic U.S. amateur ever, would a wise man bet against him? Words like those, and deeds that seemed to validate them, gave Tiger opportunities that other amateurs just didn't get. In April 1996, he made his second appearance as an amateur at the Masters Tournament. There, under the 150-year-old oak that serves as a gathering spot at Augusta National, a reporter named Gary D'Amato approached Tiger's father, Earl Woods. I said, you know, Mr. Woods, the Greater Milwaukee Open follows by one week the U.S. Amateur Champion and precedes 
Tiger returning for what would have been his junior year at Stanford. And I said, would you guys be interested if the tournament offered you a sponsor's exemption to play in it? And he said, um, yeah, we definitely would consider that. Right away, D'Amato, who wrote for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, called Tom Strong, the Greater Milwaukee Open's tournament director. I said, you know, I would love to give him a spot whether he turns pro or not. We had eight exemptions and four of them we could use unrestricted. So the week of the Masters, Glenn Greenspan was running the media center. So we sent a letter to Glenn and said, please give this to Earl Woods. And so he did. And Earl called me back that day when it was delivered. And at that point in time, he said, we'd love to play. And in that way, the Greater Milwaukee Open, or GMO, became the site of Tiger Woods' professional debut. And so tell me about the GMO. Well, it was nice that we had a, a PGA Tour level event, you know, in Wisconsin. It was, it had been around for a long time. We'd have maybe 10 to 20 of the top 30 players to 50 players in the world coming to play at that time. And we had a great time with it. We had a lot of people come on out and watch it and truly enjoyed it. It was, it was fun to run, to be real honest. So it was an event that the community kind of supported. You know, it wasn't like a massive market event, but they, they kind of got behind it. Yeah, they got behind it a lot. And that's it's kind of what Wisconsin's all about. But according to Gary D'Amato, the GMO did have its issues. It was not certainly not among the upper echelon of tour events. You know, it had a smaller purse. It had bad dates, usually around or opposite the British Open in the summer. And then for a while, it moved to Labor Day weekend which was good for some reasons, but it also bumped into the start of Packer season and, you know, University of Wisconsin football. So football sort of overwhelmed it when it was on the Labor Day dates. It sort of bounced back and forth. It never had a title sponsor until the last few years of its existence. So the tour kind of pushed it around a little bit. But it was a nice summertime staple event in Milwaukee that attracted a, a pretty good field, you know, considering the person, the date. For a week in August 1996, however... Tom Strong saw the GMO go from a quiet, small market event to the center of the golf universe. It definitely notched up to what I'd call electric. It's just in ticket sales. We sold out everything we could possibly sell when we announced he was coming. And then on top of that, the impact on just dollars and cents, it was three to $400,000 just in extra ticket revenue that we took in from, from his announcement over and above and it was very easy to track based on kind of how we looked at it from the previous year which was the field was pretty much the same other than him coming in and being part of the event just having him there just all the buzz everything going on him announcing people just wanted to come out and see him it drove our numbers through the roof we were busy i can tell you that over in the press tent gary damato noticed another kind of shift there were media types that I saw at the Masters and the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship, but never in Milwaukee. So um, it was definitely a different scene. Typically, the Greater Milwaukee Open was covered by a couple newspapers, a couple of radio stations. The media center was sort of a sleepy little tent where not much was happening. But that week, certainly things changed. People Magazine came in, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times. NBC Nightly News was had someone there. So, yeah, there was a feel, certainly, that the event was much, much bigger because Tiger was coming. On Wednesday, after the Pro-Am, Tiger was going to hold a press conference. By now, everyone had a pretty good idea of what he planned to announce. And Tom Strong had a pretty good idea that they'd need a bigger tent. 
probably around nine in the morning, that time frame, we started talking more with our media officials and, and what our options would be. And so the next thing I know is I get a call from, forget the media official at that time, but said, Tom, we're up over 150 to 200 media that want to come and cover this. And then all of a sudden, I think it was ABC that really kind of pushed it over the edge and said, we're bringing in our crew and everything else. And where are we going to host this? They just wanted to take over the media center. And I said, well, we can't really do that. So we worked out the details. They said, look, I've got a pavilion over here that's 10,000 square feet. It's, it's just straight by the range. It's, it's very easy to do. About mid-afternoon, we were pushing over 300 that wanted to come cover it. So it was coming from every, every angle. At the press conference, as expected, Tiger declared that his amateur career was over. With his father sitting in an easy chair beside him, he read a prepared statement and answered questions from the assembled media. But the one thing everyone remembers from that day happened at the very beginning when Tiger walked up to the microphone, glanced at the crowd of reporters, laughed a little to himself, studied his notes for a second, and then greeted the room with a confident smile. I guess, hello world, huh? <laughs> well, thank you. It was a striking opener, and it got a variety of reactions. Here's Tom Strong. I kind of sat maybe six feet away from him in the front row and got to hear the hello world. You know, did that, that little statement right there will never, never leave my memory banks. It was so cool to watch. And here's Curtis Strange, two-time U.S. Open winner and one of Tiger's competitors at the 96 GMO. All I remember is hello world. I don't remember anything else about the, it was probably the most, you know, routine press conference after that. But when he opened it with that, that myself, to me, I might, I was immediately thinking, well, I don't know if I'd have said something like that, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. So, and I'm sure most other tour players, now I'm speaking on behalf of the tour players. I have no idea what the general public was thinking, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, he hadn't hit a professional shot yet, so we were just going to wait and see how good this kid really was. While it may have irked some of his new colleagues, Tiger's Hello World quip was a hit with almost everyone else. It seemed spontaneous, but it actually wasn't. The next day, in newspapers and on TV, Nike rolled out its now-iconic Hello World advertisements. The campaign was the brainchild of Jim Riswold, a writer at the agency Wyden and Kennedy, and the go-to guy for its Nike account. If you were a sports fan in the 1990s, you'll recognize many of his ads instantly. I am not a role model. Yo, this is Morris Blackman, and this is my main man, Michael Jordan. Bo knows baseball. Jordan and Air Jordan. What'd you expect? Am I Riswald also happened to be a single-digit handicap, and he had been following Tiger's exploits on the amateur circuit for years. And I thought it was pretty good, and I see that guy play, and I go, I'm a frickin' hack. <laughs> That's exactly how I felt. <laughs> he made good golfers and great golfers feel like hacks. <laughs> and I, I, I believe I pestered Nike quite a bit the this guy should be a Nike athlete. About a month before the U.S. Amateur, Riswald got word that he would be developing Tiger's first Nike campaign. 
Initially, Riswald considered the slogan, I am not a token, but decided that was too on the nose. Then came the idea. For the soundtrack, he chose dramatic choral music with vaguely exotic percussion. On the screen, images of Tiger's triumphs along with short bursts of text. Hello world. I shot in the 70s when I was eight. I shot in the 60s when I was 12. I won the US Junior Amateur when I was 15. Hello world. I played in the Nissan Open when I was 16. Hello world. I won the US Amateur when I was 18. I played in the Masters when I was 19. I am the only man to win three consecutive US Amateur titles. Hello world. There are still courses in the US I am not allowed to play because of the color of my skin. Hello world. I've heard I'm not ready for you. Are you ready for me? It was goosebump inducing, but also something of a risk. The ad put Tiger's racial identity front and center, and it portrayed the golf world as more racially prejudiced than the rest of society. It was pressing on a sore spot. Race has always been a powder keg in America, but it was particularly so in 1996. It had been just six years since Hall Thompson, the founder of Shoal Creek Club in Alabama, set off a national controversy by saying, we don't discriminate in every other area except blacks. It had been four years since South Central Los Angeles, not far from Tiger's childhood home, was rocked by riots in response to the acquittal of the police officers who had beaten Rodney King. And it had been less than a year since O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. The tactics of Simpson's attorneys had brought the notion of the race card into public discourse. To play the race card, it was said, was to bring up the issue of race in order to manipulate people's feelings and gain an advantage. And Jim Riswald knew that the Hello World ad could easily be accused of race carding. And, you know, I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do, and I showed the script to my boss, Dan Wyden, and he said, this is the only thing we're going to do. <laughs> and then Phil Knight was involved in approval of this ad. Uh, it went that high. And he says, of course, because, you know, they like to poke the bear. They like to be um, irreverent. And it was pretty easy to poke the bear at golf at the time, pretty lily white, you know, a man of color changing the game. I don't think golf is ready for it. You know, Nike likes to be an iconoclast. In tennis, they challenge the tennis norms with players like McEnroe and Agassi. You know, it's essentially the same. We're going to challenge the status quo and the norm with not only a man of color, but a man who played the game at a far different level, you know, mentally and physically than anybody had seen before. Yet Reswald denies the charge that the ad was just trying to be provocative. A lot of advertising tries to be shocking for shocking sake. You know, whether you think this ad is shocking or not, that might be a bit much. But it came from the truth. It wasn't just made up hullabaloo. Sports is, is part of the fabric of this country. And as part of the fabric of a country, when social issues arise within sports, they should be discussed. <laughs> or they it becomes just this little exclusive little island that only a few people are allowed to be on. Of course, it should be said that this ideal was well aligned with his clients' business interests. The wider golf's appeal, the more product Nike would sell. Besides, as much as the ad was sure to anger some people, it was bound to appeal to many more. 
For most of its runtime, it focused not on Tiger Woods's race, but on his accomplishments, the scores, the wins. So the story it told was actually one of merit overcoming obstacles. And in that way, the Hello World campaign was even somewhat conventional. It was about the American dream. Just hours after Tiger beat Steve Scott on the 38th hole to win the U.S. Amateur, Riswald walked into a room in Pumpkin Ridge's clubhouse carrying a tape. Tiger was there, along with his mother and father, his coach Butch Harmon, and Nike CEO Phil Knight. And Phil makes an introduction, and I think he made some joke about me and said he's done a lot of ads that I like for me. He thinks this is one of his best ones. And we play it, and it's silent. And Phil asked Tiger, well, what do you think? And Tiger goes, can I see it again? <laughs> and then we played it again, and then there was hooperin' and hollering. I think his dad said, Bobby Jones is turning over in his grave. <laughs> you know, Earl Earl was not one to hold his tongue. <laughs> and I, re- I just, I remember getting to drink out of the trophy with Tiger. <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> but Charmin said, he pulled me aside and said, I think that's the best golf ad I've ever seen. Hello World aired four days later, during the first round of the GMO. The public response was about what Riswald had expected, and what Nike had hoped for. <laughs> I remember I almost had to change my telephone number at home. <laughs> uh, I was getting some calls from people that didn't appreciate the ad, <laughs> called me names and stuff. And then, you know, the next week, it's not only on television, it's on the news everywhere, which you can't ask for better than that. Within reason, Phil Knight adores negative publicity. (laughs) Within reason. I mean, this created a conversation. Everybody was talking about that act. And behind the scenes at the GMO, some people weren't saying very nice things. On the driving range and in the press tent, there were mutterings about sensationalism in the race card. Some doubted there were any courses in the U.S. that would bar Tiger from playing just because he was black. A Washington Post reporter actually ended up posing that question to Nike, and Nike admitted that the claim wasn't to be taken literally. Well, that that seemed to be a bit nitpicking. I mean, it was a general station about color in the game of golf. Of course, Tiger Woods could play anywhere he wanted to but not the next Tiger Woods. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't playing certain clubs when he was 12 years old. Jim Riswald felt, and still feels, that the ad conveyed a truth about golf's exclusivity. And the customers Nike was trying to reach tended to agree. According to market studies, young people found Hello World very effective. So Nike wasn't too concerned about blowback from traditional sectors of the golf world. In fact, the company welcomed the controversy and the additional attention that came with it. Still, Riswald did have one concern. I look back on that ad, and, you know, I'm surprised that people still want to talk about it. But the thing, you know, did I put too much pressure on a kid to carry that mantle or that torch? Unlike his father, Tiger had never been eager to discuss racial issues publicly. He had even said that the only time he thought about race was when the media asked him about it. And now here he was, appearing in a commercial that invited questions about exactly that subject. I don't think he was terribly comfortable talking about race, but I do think that he carries that sense of a mission that, you know, he's representing a disadvantaged group of people. 
he hates the unfairness of racism and i i think golf for him was a way of of uh, making a statement but i don't think he likes being a public figure or a public symbol of that battle of that social movement he was a golfer he wanted to play his best he wanted to have a private life and he didn't want a lot of baggage and uh you know i think in a in an efficient way maybe a cold way maybe he got more socially conscious later but i think he thought of it as a distraction that was only going to hurt his performance and and in the end he was going to be judged by his performance nonetheless Jaime Diaz believes that hello world did touch on some real feelings that tiger had he used to talk about it getting the look when he'd come to a go play uh, at a junior event at a country club that perhaps not didn't have african american members or very few and he he always felt that he'd be stared at in a way that made him uncomfortable so, you know nike's very skillful i mean uh, I, they they knew what buttons to push uh, and i don't think that was an artificially trumped up button it was uh, it was a real thing maybe too real in other words too personal too private too distracting from his central purpose it's like okay i i can be a i can be a social warrior here but what's it going to do for what i have to do here which is play the best golf i can and i i don't like the feeling of being criticized and being uh, having all my, every word i say parsed it, it's too much so he given his his personality uh, i consider him an introvert who had had enough coverage and enough exposure he, he wasn't looking for more attention he was looking for less attention but that too subjected tiger to criticism at first at first it was like oh he's going to be he's going to play the race card you know okay we don't like that and he got criticized for that and then you know it was like oh he's not doing enough he, you know he's in the position to do to make a big difference and he's not doing enough and he's not doing as much as other athletes some seem to want tiger to be a political firebrand in the mold of muhammad ali but he was more inclined to be like michael jordan focused on his sport measured in public and reluctant to weigh in on controversial issues of course it would be unfair to say that tiger hasn't made an effort in the social domain he formed the tiger woods foundation in november 96 and ever since it has worked to help underprivileged students I think the foundation was the way that he could answer in an organized way that could not be questioned in terms of the good it was doing and the motive that he had for it. And again, just like his clubs did the talking, so did the foundation do the talking. But Tiger himself has declined to take partisan stances, or really to speak out as a representative of any particular minority. Jim Riswold's second Nike campaign for Tiger was more in line with this attitude. I'm Tiger Woods. I'm Tiger Woods. I'm Tiger Woods. Unveiled during the 1996 Skins game, it alternates between shots of Tiger and footage of children, boys and girls, ranging from tiny to teenage, from white to Asian American to African American to Latino, all reciting the same mantra. I'm Tiger Woods. I'm Tiger Woods. In this commercial, Tiger was no longer the outsider disrupting the status quo. Instead, Tiger was everybody, and everybody was Tiger. Anyone, no matter their ancestry, could identify with him, even identify as him. After his 97 Masters victory, in a famous appearance on The Oprah Winfrey Show, Tiger took a similar approach. Can we get this straight? What do you call yourself? Do you call yourself African American? I know you are. Your, your father's half black, quarter Chinese, quarter American Indian, mother's half Thai, quarter Chinese, and quarter white. So... <laughs> You are, that's why you America, son. Yeah. <laughs> you are America, son. Yeah, um, I guess two things is mm -hmm. that, uh, I guess, 
now that I'm on the Ryder Cup team, which we get to go over and um, play in Europe in September, that uh, I won't be representing the United States. I'll be representing the United Nations. Mm -hmm. It's a little different. Right. But cool. uh, no, the, a little, little funny thing is, growing up, I came up with this name. I'm a Koblenasian. A Koblenasian. Ka, Caucasian, blue, black, Indian, Asian. Koblenasian. That's what you call yourself? Yeah. yeah. Well, coming up, Tiger's father Earl is... On the one hand, this was no doubt a genuine sentiment. Tiger is referred to as African-American far more often than he's referred to as Asian-American, even though his mother is Asian. This is part of that long American tradition of categorizing any person with the proverbial one drop of African blood as black. So surely no one could blame Tiger for refusing to accept that oversimplification and for reclaiming his identity on his own terms. On the other hand, Encouraging everyone, including white people, to see themselves in him was a savvy strategy, even if it wasn't consciously a strategy. If Hello World was a challenge, are you ready for me? Then I Am Tiger Woods was an embrace. I am you. You are me. Let's all wear Nike. So, back to Milwaukee. Thursday, August 29th, round one. The atmosphere around Tiger was vibrating with hype. And some of the other pros at the GMO had started to grumble. Yeah, and I think that's when probably players sat up a little bit. Why was this kid getting so much more attention than um, some other star coming out? But again, I can't speak for everybody, but there was chatter. Uh, I will say this. There was enough attention that I played like two or three groups behind him on Thursday mid-morning. And when he went to the first two, there was eight or 10 of us putting, getting ready to go off. You know, we were going off one in 10 teams and people around and everybody stopped to watch this guy tee off. And that speaks volumes when you know about the tour. In 1996, Curtis Strange was a well-respected 41-year-old pro in the latter stages of his playing career. He was seven years removed from his back-to-back -back U.S. Open victories. And although he still had some game, he was preparing for his next step. In addition to playing at the GMO, he was helping out with ABC's coverage, and he figured he had the connections to land the biggest one-on-one -on -one interview of the week. So I had the same agent as Tiger, you know, Hughes Norton, and so, and I know Tiger. I, hell, I played with Tiger in the Masters when he was still in Atlanta in the second round. So I kind of knew him and knew a little bit of him and knew the lead up, and I was in my third or fourth year at, at ABC, and I don't know why they agreed to this, but I went to my producer, since I knew Tiger a little bit, I wanted to do the interview. And so they said, okay. And then Tiger and his people said, sounds good to us. So it came together in the last couple of days. In fact, I saw Tiger on Tuesday and I ran over to him. I said, hey, can you do a, can you work with us Thursday night after you finish playing? I'm going to do the interview. Will you talk to us? He said, sure, no problem. That's probably the last time he ever answered an interview request like that. In spite of all the excitement around Tiger, Strange was by no means certain that he was about to sit down with the greatest golfer since Jack Nicklaus. But I didn't know much about him. I tell you, if, if it wasn't for we had the same agent back at that time, and if it wasn't for me knowing through him and through some other really close people in the amateur game, I wouldn't have known he'd won three juniors and three amateurs in a row. And I suspect more than half of the PGA Tour players didn't know that either. And the other half probably didn't care because that's just the way the tour is. Uh, and it's a hard game out there, and you've got enough to, to take care of it your own self, but you worry about some other kid coming out. And But they all knew Tiger was going to be good. 
how good we had no idea. And as I said, most players didn't know he was such a phenomenal amateur player. So I guess that what I'm saying is it was just wasn't much talked about, wasn't much said about him until maybe that particular week at, uh, at the GMO. Strange, like many of his fellow pros, sensed a mismatch between how little he knew about this 20-year-old and how much attention he had attracted. So going into the interview, Strange was determined not to be another fanboy. He was going to ask real questions. And I worked hard. I was nervous. Uh, I was playing that week, so I was trying to do that as well. I worked with Tariko, worked with Jack Graham, my producer, on getting the questions right, getting them in sequence, getting them in order. Of course, a lot of it is ad lib, going off his answer. And uh, we found out how that can be during the interview. It took place in a darkened room with Curtis Strange and Tiger Woods sitting across from each other. Here's the key moment. What would be a successful week here in Milwaukee? Uh, two, two things. I think if I play four solid rounds, uh, we'll go off to a good start today. Uh, if I can do that for three more days, I'll be very happy. And uh, a victory would be awfully nice, too. A victory. Mm. Do you think, um, to me, that comes off as uh, a little cocky or brash? Especially talking to the, you know, the other guys on tour that have been out here for years and years and years, and you know, certainly an incredible amateur record. But what do you say to those guys? Well, I when you come out here, you're, you know what I'm saying. Your I first understand. pro tournament, and you say, you know, I can win. Oh, I understand that. Um, I've always figured that why go to a tournament if you're not going there to try and win? There's really no point in even going. Um, that's the attitude I've had my entire life, and that's the attitude I will always have. Um, as I will explain to my dad, second sucks, and third's even worse. Uh, that's just a feeling But on I tour, have. that's not too bad sometimes, though. That's not too bad, but I've, I want to win. Um, that's just my nature. You'll learn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding you. I'm sorry I had to say that. <laughs> my, my job that evening was to get inside Tiger Woods a little bit, not so much his golf game, but get inside you this young man who's getting ready to embark on a long, difficult career in golf. And I tried to listen really hard to come back with some good follow-ups. And then he came out with, you know, the, the, the shocking answer to a question of mine is that, you know, I expect to win second sucks and third is even worse. Well, quite frankly, how this all came about when that, when I heard that it shocked me. And I think you can see it on my face that, uh, well, that's a little cocky, I'm thinking. And I asked him, I said, do you not think that that sounds a little brash to all the other tour players? Yes, I do, but that's the way I think, which was a fair enough answer. And then we all chuckled, and I said, the infamous, <laughs> you'll learn. And what I meant by that is you'll learn that sometimes second doesn't suck. Because if you play your ass off and uh, somebody else, on tour plays a little bit better then I always looked at it as well. You can't beat yourself up for that. If you finish second by not finishing well or not performing well sometime in the tournament where you really kind of messed up, then you can get upset at yourself. But if you play your best golf and which you can do on tour and get beat by one or two by a better player that week, I don't think you should beat yourself too badly because you're going to be able to have that opportunity plenty in the coming years on tour to beat yourself up so that was my point and it was also a little bit unjust and also a little bit that um, you're going to learn that it's a little bit harder than you think it is pal and that was the end of that 
periodically, the interview resurfaces on the internet, and the replies aren't always kind to the interviewer. Here's a sampling. And that, kids, is what we call putting Curtis Strange in a body bag. Clear case of you don't know who the F you're talking to. Open mouth, insert foot, Curtis. What we forget, though, is that the Tiger Woods sitting in front of Curtis Strange that day wasn't yet the Tiger Woods we now know. Amateur success, even amateur dominance, didn't always translate to the PGA Tour. And the pros tended to believe that you had to earn your bravado. Every player on tour that heard that or saw that agreed with me. You know, Jesus, it's just, just, you know, of course, now he's won 82 tournaments. So he proved us wrong. You know, at the time of the place, he hadn't hit, but he hadn't played one one round of golf in his life professionally. So give me a fucking break. We, what they, what they lose in these 20 some odd years is that this was a young man. He'd been professional four or five days and we didn't know how good he was and we were soon to find out but I was being honest and he was being honest and it wasn't any disrespect whatsoever I'm proud of it I'm proud that I got the interview I'm proud that we did it I think we at ABC did a nice job putting it together and if somebody takes it out of context 23 years later, then they're not educated. It's as simple as that. Um, I guess it wasn't a bad thing if they're still talking about it. Strange also acknowledges that what he experienced as brashness in 1996 turned out to be a key to Tiger's greatness. That attitude did take him to just unbelievable heights. Not accepting anything but perfect. Not accepting anything but a win. You know. I dare say that he won tournaments and wasn't happy. That's what made him so good to have that attitude. But you also had to back it up with with uh, a tremendous ability too. So, and as well as he showed us he can play in the next couple of years, that second really probably does suck to this kid, <laughs> you know. And so, what I thought he didn't understand was that how good the tour players were. What we didn't didn't understand is how actually good and better than anybody else he was. In the end, according to Jaime Diaz, Tiger didn't really take offense to Strange's questioning. Well, I know he had a lot of respect for Curtis, but I also, I think he knew. John Cook has a saying about Tiger. It's very simple, but he, he knows who he is. He, he's fully aware of how great he is and what his capacity is and how that to some people is a little bit incomprehensible. Uh, <laughs> that they're, you know, he's ahead of the curve. And uh, he understood why Curtis was skeptical. But I think it just the way the way he answered those questions. I remember it, it, it was he didn't do it in a condescending way, but it was almost like you just don't understand. You, you don't understand how good I am. And I'm not going to brag about it, but this is why I believe I can do it every week, because I am that good. And, you know, it's hard to take if you're a pro who's who's hardened and and know that the game is mostly about defeat to see that kind of seems like brashness. So all things considered, the interview was quite revealing, not only about Tiger's mindset, but also about how other pros on tour felt about him. There was plenty of laughter between the two men, but there was also some tension, some awkwardness, some doubt about what they would say next. In future years, we'd hardly ever see Tiger in a media situation as unpredictable or as honest. You know, I just think it was an extension of extreme fame. I I don't think he had a sort of, as I said, an innate 
dislike of the media, but the media machine became something he couldn't control. And the more famous he got, the less control he had. Obviously, the questions got more and more probing as he became a bigger celebrity and a bigger figure of curiosity. And, and with that, he felt his private life. He had an innate sense that losing your private life was dangerous. So he was cautious in that regard. And I remember doing a story for him, a story on him for a travel and leisure golf. And he talked about his core. He had to keep his core private and, you know, inward and, and not let too many people see that or touch it. And certainly the media was part of that. But anyway, I'm, I'm saying a lot of things uh, that probably just add up to one thing, which is basically as he got more famous, he got less willing to open up his life. And maybe that's part of why when Strange came up with the idea of doing a sequel interview 20 years later, it never came together. He did follow up with Tiger, but not in front of the cameras. Uh, about eight or 10 years later, we were having a beer somewhere. And it was just he, I think it was he and I and his agent. And I said, you know, I'm going to tell you something. Remember that interview? I said, we all learned. I just said, you didn't learn. We all learned. And he kind of smiled and said, yeah. I said at the beginning of this episode that this wouldn't be a story about what happened on the golf course at the 96 GMO, but there are a few things we should remember. Before the Wednesday Pro-Am, Gary D'Amato of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel was standing by the first tee at Brown Deer Park Golf Course, and he saw Tiger arrive, almost late for his tee time. I remember Tiger sort of rushing to the first tee for his Pro-Am, and on the way, his caddy, Fluff Cowan, ran out of the Brown Deer Clubhouse with a brand new Titleist staff bag still wrapped in plastic. And Tiger and Fluff sort of hurriedly ripped the plastic off and transferred his clubs from a, I think it was a Stanford carry bag to a, to a Titleist staff bag. I was standing there watching this with maybe four other people in the shade of a tree. And I thought, I, I honestly thought, boy, this is sort of the symbolic moment where he has just become a professional golfer. D'Amato was back at the first tee the next day when Tiger hit his first shot as a professional. You know, it was a special vibe. It was a crowd of five deep where typically a newly minted pro on the first tee hit during the Greater Milwaukee Open might attract, you know, his family and 20 curious spectators. Tiger obviously had what was different. He had a, a huge gallery, you know, four or five deep, many of whom I, I believe followed him for all 18 holes, probably just to say that they, you know, witnessed his first round as a professional. So there was definitely an excitement and a vibe in the, in the atmosphere, in the air that, that typically wouldn't be on the first tee for almost any group at the Greater Milwaukee Open. Throughout the week, Tiger's groups attracted galleries, the likes of which tournament director Tom Strong had never seen at the GMO, which had its positive and negative sides. You know, when he went out and played, it didn't matter if it was the Pro-Am or it was the first round. They were seven deep following him, and it was every hole. People just wanted to see him. I think we all knew it was something special at that point. I think the other thing I can tell you that that was probably the first time I really saw players get interrupted as Tiger finished putting. He was, and there's still people to putt on the green. All of a sudden, they started rushing to the next hole, and so then you had that that interruption that kind of came around. There really wasn't a lot our marshals could do at that point, other than you know, kind of say, you know, stand please and whatever, but they were just going to try and position for the next hole. 
Nowadays, Tiger has been known to mark his ball instead of tapping in so that his playing partners don't have to deal with the commotion. To Tom Strong, though, the most remarkable thing about the galleries wasn't their size or excitability. It was who was in them. What I saw was a lot more kids. Um, a lot of people who didn't even play the game, I think, were out there. It, it was just it was a mix of people that just wanted to come on. You had your avid golfers to those just knew this was kind of special. You had Bucks players and wanting to come out and see him. The interest level and wanting to be at the Pro-Am and, and just be around him. It just kept building the entire week. And that emotion came pouring out whenever Tiger did, well, just about anything. It didn't matter whether he made a birdie, whether he made a par, but people were just clapping and hooting and hollering like you know. He just, it gave you chills at times just with what was all going on. So when Tiger did something truly spectacular, the crowds were primed. That final round when he made the hole of one on 14. This is six iron. And for once, they were right. The ninth hole in one for Tiger Woods. And I don't know if you've ever been to Brown Deer, but it's a really big park. So I was probably a good. 800 to 1,000 yards away from that hole because I was over back at my office. You know, the, I had the window open and stuff like that, and all of a sudden I hear this roar. And there was, there was only one person that they were screaming for at that point in time, and then immediately right over the radio comes, Tiger just aced 14, and the place was going nuts. But for the most part, Tiger's week at the GMO wasn't about extraordinary golf. He played fine, opening with a 67, getting derailed by a third-round 73, and never quite finding that extra gear we would soon find out he had. He ended up tied for 60th. This is where my own memory kicks in. I remember watching bits of the GMO telecast and following the scores. I was 12 and a big fan of Wisconsin native Steve Stricker, who placed third. But I was intrigued by this good-looking, cool-looking, powerful young player that everyone seemed so excited about. So when Tiger made the cut and shot three rounds in the 60s, I thought, hey, pretty good. He can compete. What I didn't know, what no one really knew except maybe Tiger himself, was that T60 was about the worst his talent would allow him to do. It would be another nine months before he finished that low in another PGA Tour event. Over the next 13 years, he would finish worse than T60 a total of nine times. Now, if you're a golf fan, you know the rest of Tiger's trajectory in 96 and 97. 11th place at the Bell Canadian Open, 5th place at the Quad City Classic, 3rd place at the BC Open, and then a win at the Las Vegas Invitational. Another win at the Walt Disney World Classic. In less than a quarter of a season, Tiger had qualified for the Tour Championship. Five months later, he won the Masters by 12 strokes. Tiger Mania was in full effect, and a new era in professional golf had begun. But history, like memory, is all about point of view. When we tell ourselves the story of the rise of Tiger Woods, we tend to adopt the perspective of the public, that is, a perspective trained on Tiger himself, wherever he happened to go. 
and that's reasonable. But, of course, the places Tiger visited and the people he encountered went on existing after he left. This is one advantage of stopping to examine a single moment in history. You can remember some of the things that usually get forgotten because they occurred after the spotlight moved on. By 1997, Tiger was on his now-familiar minimalist schedule, about 20 events per year, selected with an eye to sponsors, purse sizes, and major championship preparation. The Greater Milwaukee Open didn't fit, and he never returned. Here's Gary D'Amato. It was just one huge year when Milwaukee was sort of the epicenter of the, the golf universe, and then when it went back after that very quickly to being um, just another small-town stop um, one of few remaining on the PGA Tour. And I know to this date, there's still a lot of people around here who are, I wouldn't say bitter, but I guess disappointed is a better word, that Tiger didn't sort of repay the GMO's exemption and, and return at least once just to say thank you. Um, I've heard that over the years. People have griped that he never came back. And I asked him in, over the you know over the intervening years if he'd consider coming back to Milwaukee. He was also vague, always vague about his answer, which was understandable, you know, He'd ask me when the when the tournament was on the schedule, even though he probably knew, and he tried that sort of thing. But you got the impression pretty quickly that you know he really wasn't going to come back. Even as Tiger Woods's popularity infused the PGA Tour and the sport at large with new energy, the GMO declined. As time went on, it sort of sort of lost that prestige. The last few years, U.S. Bank sponsored it, and it was called the U.S. Bank Championship in Milwaukee. And by the end of its run, for whatever reason, whether it was lack of marketing muscle or other things on the summer calendar, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers were uh, started to be a big draw and, and built a new stadium. And uh, we have a, a big event called Summerfest in the middle of our summer and a lot of um, a lot of ethnic festivals. And I think it sort of got lost a little bit on the summer calendar. And by the last couple of years, it was not attracting very big galleries, unfortunately. I think if you had to put a finger on the biggest reason why the tournament went away was sort of a lack of overall community support. Corporate and community and civic involvement in the tournament just seemed to wane in those last couple of years. And and certainly the the economic downturn was a factor. In 2009, Bovan Pelt won the final edition of the Greater Milwaukee Open. After that year, U.S. Bank withdrew its sponsorship and the event dissolved. The GMO had been part of the PGA Tour for 42 years, but today, outside of Wisconsin, if people know about it at all, it's as the answer to a trivia question. Where did Tiger Woods debut as a professional? Where did Tiger Woods say, hello world? Where did Curtis Strange tell Tiger Woods, you'll learn? Where did Tiger Woods make his first professional hole-in-one? This is the way with someone as legendary as Tiger. Cross paths with him once, play one small role in his continually retold biography, and it may end up being the main thing people remember about you. Consider Jim Riswald, who by any measure has had an exceptional career as one of the great ad men of the past 30 years. When I sent him an email asking to interview him, he replied, sure, I can talk about Hello World for the millionth time. I mean, Garrett, it is, it's hysterical. I, you know, I, 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 gee, it makes me feel old. <laughs> it's just like, do you know who I used to be? Uh, that guy that did these ads that people are talking more about now <laughs> than they did <laughs> when they ran. Today, Riswald is a full-time artist. Uh, or I'd like to say I've gone from a career selling things 
that people don't need to making things that they don't want, <laughs> i.e. my art. But it keeps me happy. I mean, I, I had to leave the business because I got quite ill. And I, I was supposed to die. And, you know, because leukemia is a killer. And then I got another cancer after that. My boss, Dan Wyden, quipped when I finally retired the second time. You can't do anything right, including dying. <laughs> so I happily here, you know, and I still freelance every once in a while. But advertising's a young person's game. <laughs> and I am not a young person. <laughs> I heard versions of that sentiment a lot in my interviews for this episode. Man, we were younger back then. And boy, have we gotten old. It's trite to say, and obvious, but crucial. Those of us who remember Tiger erupting onto our TV screens in 1996 and 97 are now 23 years older. Even the youngest of us are in our 30s. So recalling the Tiger of that time becomes at least partly an exercise in nostalgia, in recalling not just who Tiger was, but who we were, and what we've seen and been through in the years since. We've all come a long way, and so has he. I, I just, I marvel at knowing Tiger all these years and working TV since that first day he played golf on tour, watching him and talking about him so much and dissecting everything, which we do, which is what unfair as hell, that's what we do. I marvel at what he has been able to achieve in this day and time. Pretty phenomenal stuff. Now, how can you dominate the best of your sport by that much? That it doesn't come along very often. And we're just lucky to have that guy that came along happen to be a golfer. I just, I just don't think you can put it to words how, how big a factor he's been in our game the last 23 years. This was the third episode of Fried Egg Stories. It was created and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, with mixing and engineering from Jay Virick. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>